0: Good evening and welcome to another episode of Across the Pond. Barry just pointed out it's lucky number 13.
1: 13 is a great number. I don't know why everyone's got such a thing about it. It's a wonderful number. It's the day I was born on. So I'm excited for this one, Chad. Let's get into it.
0: across the pond. So like Barry said, it's, it's kind of the anniversary of his birth, which is which is incredible. Uh, not quite, uh, if you were to look at it in <laughs> monthly terms. Um, but yeah, Barry had a bit of uh, a bit of concerns to try and get here to tonight. Eskom's load shedding um, made it a little bit uncertain if he was actually going to be able to join us. But thankfully,
1: he's here. So Barry, welcome. Thank you so much. That That's part of the fun of podcasting in Joburg. You never know when you're going to have power. You never know how you're going to re- record these episodes. Uh, so I'm very happy that Eskom gave us some power back just in time for our recording, Chad. So excited to get into this one. Just
0: in time indeed. Well, let's get into it. The week that was...
1: The first one in the week that was is talking about a topic that's come up again and again during our podcast so far and that's the topic of facial recognition technology. Now Chad if you remember last week we spoke about the EU potentially looking to ban the use of facial recognition for the next five years and we talked about how it's quite a bold move to make and, and talked about some of the pros and cons about such a thing and in this week it comes out that London who obviously have now left the EU and are, now part, are part of the separate in, independent entity they call the UK, um, London have announced that they are going to use, going to start to Deploying facial recognition technology in some key areas in London, right? So they've they've taken some key targeted areas they think are at high risk for things like terrorist attacks and stabbings and robberies and those kinds of things. And they're going to deploy facial recognition technology to help police in those areas. So they came out of the statement saying they're going to start trialing this and, and experimenting with it and seeing how it works. And they made it very clear to say this isn't going to take the place of the police. It's just right. going to be a tool the police can use to find people they're looking for or to try and look for suspicious activity. Um, so it's a very interesting move. It shows the difference between what the UK and the EU are now going to do. It's the first kind of diversion that I've seen when it comes to policy, and when it comes to the use of technology. And so I think it's quite interesting. Chad, what do you think about this coming into your, your, your city there? Yeah, I mean, like
0: you say, I think it, it is interesting to see given the, the timelines. And, uh, you know, last Friday was the day. Um, I think a lot of people expected a lot to change overnight and uh, have been reminded very quickly that it's business as usual, pretty much until um, essentially the, the, the next year runs, runs out its course in, in terms of the um, negotiations that are going to take place. Um, but yeah, certainly uh, we always speak about facial recognition and privacy. Um, and kind of similar to last week's episode, I, I, I'm always keen to, to know that the sort of specifics of this. So is this going to be a sort of central camera service um, where there is a specific algorithm or specific piece of software that allows, um, you know, government to access this? Or is this actually allowing more private people to uh, have facial recognition in their stores, for instance?
1: I think this is specifically targeted towards the government's use of it. So the government's going to have a system they use uh, around certain public areas and they're going to have full control. So private citizens aren't going to be able to look at the data or understand use the technology or any of that kind of stuff. It's purely for the government and the police specifically to try and improve public safety in those areas that are considered high risk. And so as far as I understand, as a, as a, as a public citizen, you're not going to have much choice in this. Like you, your, your face is going to be recorded throughout these public areas. And then using the police data they have on record, they're going to start making insights and, and, and inferences and those kinds of things that are hopefully going to help them reduce crime and try and improve that safety. So I think that's kind of the way they're going, but this is very early days. I mean, this only came out a few days ago, and so we're waiting to see how it's going to be executed and what impact it's going to have on things like subway stations, on train stations, on public court, courtyards and yep. places and those sorts of things.
0: Well, I think that's a key thing, yeah. and to and to sort of answer your question of how I feel about it. To be honest, I'm not too fussed. Um, I mean, as soon as we leave the boundaries of our front door, um, you know, we're in the public domain, and uh, and you know, for me, I I think it's fair game. Um, if it's going to make a society safer. Um, it's, if it's going to be in the right people's hands, if they're going to be used for the right purpose. I completely, I completely get that. Now that you mentioned it's going to be mainly for government sort of camera systems, um, there are loads of those. So you mentioned the subway system. Um, even if you consider the buses, um, throughout London's networks, um, each of these buses have—I don't know—at least ten cameras on board, um, and even pointing onto the street. Um, so I certainly think it's going to be uh, useful data, especially when we when we look at uh, these terrorist attacks. And unfortunately, we actually have one this week to report on. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm certainly not against it, um, and uh, for once, I think it's it's good to see um, you know London breaking away from the EU in this in this way. Um, so yeah. That's my thoughts. What what are your thoughts if, if this were to be in Johannesburg?
1: Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure what I think about this. Uh, we've been chatting about it for a few weeks and I'm still unsure about the privacy versus safety con- conversation, right? Um, it, it certainly does feel like inevitable. I think that all cities are gonna have this in the future. I find it hard to see a city that's gonna hold off on this technology if it proves to be much safer as we expect it to be, right? And especially somewhere like London, like you chatted about the terrorist attack, I think we should tackle that next, even though it's further down yep. on our list. Just because this kind of public safety has become so important in these urban, dense areas. And a lot of these first world cities, the major crimes they're seeing are these kind of um, very public, very kind of dramatic type Occurrences that really impacts on the reputation of that city and kind of the, the morale and the feeling of the citizens, right? And if the citizens have that feeling of extra safety, even if the numbers don't back it up, but if, if the cameras help to disincentivize some some bad stuff or to help to keep people accountable for their behavior, I think we're gonna see it rolled out in a lot of the major cities. Here in Joburg, of course, there's a huge crime problem, and so it's one of the one of the one of the biggest crime hub, hub spots of the world. Yep. And so I think that it would be great here. The problem in Joburg because that our police are not nearly as effective as in London, right? So our police force is quite dilapidated and not as effective as we'd like it to be. And so whether all that data and information would actually help at all is, is hard to say, right? All of this data and all of this machine learning and AI in these systems, all it does is gives the police more tools to do their job. Yeah. They still have to be good at what they do. Definitely. They still be able to have to be able to take action. They have to be able to have judgment, professional judgment, skepticism, et cetera, so they can do their job well. So this is not a replacement, or it's not going to take the place of traditional law enforcement. Sure. It's simply another tool that allows them to scale their influence and basically have eyes everywhere. Instead of just having guys patrolling areas and hoping they are walking past at the right time, you can have eyes everywhere and then reallocate your resources to those those emergency spaces when needed
0: definitely i mean it's an interesting conversation and to be completely honest the last time i was in johannesburg i did notice um at almost every sort of main intersection there is now a pole that has cctv cameras on it now i don't know where that's feeding into um i don't know as you say how uh, well it's actually going to be used um but yeah i mean i certainly think that's quite an interesting one do you know offhand uh who those cameras belong to
1: yeah, so those cameras are actually belonging to all the various private um, security organizations and companies who operate in the various areas. So the major major disadvantage of that is that that data is not shared with everybody, right? Yep. So, for example, a security company like ADT might have certain areas they're looking after, and they'll have the data for those areas, but the moment a person leaves that that neighborhood, they right. all of a sudden are, are completely dark. And so the benefit of having the government, which has full like surveillance and has can see all the data is that you unlock a lot of the insights that come with trying to locate someone. Sure. In Johannesburg, these, these, these um, security companies are putting up these cameras to try and keep residents happy and try and give some sort of recourse if something goes wrong. But when it comes to live, like in-person at that time dealing with situations, it's not as helpful because the moment the guy gets out of that, those three or four streets, all of a sudden you can't track him anymore.
0: Definitely. Well, like you said, let's let's move on to the next one, um, which is yeah, uh, basically another another terrorist attack that happened in London. Um, this happened this past weekend. Um, again, you know, we were kind of just at home and, and got this push notification from the BBC service. Um, to say that uh, an attack happened in Streatham. Um, as far as I understand, uh, there were three injuries to civilians. Um, one immediately was um, seen as life-threatening, um, but since we've heard that it is not life-threatening, which is, which is great, um, so no ordinary civilians have had any sort of severities there, which is which is fantastic. Um, but again, this, this raises the question um, about terrorism and uh, jail sentences and those kinds of things. So this person was a 20-year-old man, Um, who had been recently uh, released from prison for an Islamist-related terrorist sentence. He was halfway through the sentence um, and he was released um, to a bail hostel. I believe uh, the government saw there was extra risk in releasing this person and had actually assigned police people in uh, civilian uniform um, to completely have 100% watch over his movements um, at all times. Um, And this is exactly why... Within 10 seconds of the strikes happening, um, he was shot dead. Effectively, um, so again, it's another case where um, I think a lot of people are calling uh, on these regulations in terms of the prison sentences and uh, and this leeway for an automatic release of uh, prisoners halfway through for terrorist-related incidents. Um, but you know, then on the other side, people saying, well, if you remove that, it ultimately is just essentially delaying the inevitable, um, and I th- and the sort of key problem actually potentially being that there is no real rehabilitation of the extremists within prison, um, and uh, that' why people saying it is essentially delaying the inevitable.
1: What do you think? I think it's hard with these kind of cases because how do you rehabilitate someone if their reason for doing what they're doing is ideological, right? So if the reason they're doing it is because of some sort of idea of what an afterlife looks like or a religious idea of what I should be doing in this world— just because you put me in jail for 10 or 20 years, that might not necessarily change my views or Definitely. change the kind of the dogma that I've grown up with. So the real question here is, is a difficult one, is that is rehabilitation possible of these kinds of people? Like this guy is 20 years old, so his yep. brain hasn't developed fully. He's still kind of living with the background and upbringing that he's been brought up with. He hasn't had the chance to think for himself or, 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 or check out his views and his opinions for himself. Um, and so what kind of rehabilitation are you going to do if he believes this is the way to heaven, if he believes this is the way to to get to paradise? So with a lot of these I- ideological terror attacks it's hard to know what to do because you want to to give them the benefit of the doubt. You want to think that your your normal system of law and your system of punishment is going to do what's necessary to change that person's view and kind of make them a more empathetic individual and kind of stop him from doing things in the the future. Um, But we've seen time and time again that this doesn't always work out like that. Um, So it's a very challenging one because I think we have to think differently about our traditional law when we're thinking about these ideological crimes as opposed to a crime of hate or of passion or of just kind of, I don't know, psychopathy. 100%.
0: I mean, it almost needs to be um, done on a sort of case by case basis. I think it's really hard to put a blanket law in place that can catch um, all of these kinds of circumstances. So in terms of uh, your point about his upbringing and that kind of thing, his mother actually um, spoke to the Evening Standard, which is a newspaper that I read actually on my way home today. Um, And she was just basically talking about how he was a normal kid um, growing up. um, And how Essentially, with the advent of the internet, he was recruited at that stage, um, that kind of leading into his first sentence. And then she said, in prison, it escalated to another level. So I think here's another question of how within prison, uh, there are potentially groups and factions there that are actually
1: even boosting their own agenda. That's an interesting one. Definitely, and, and, that's, and that's a problem we've dealt with in prisons for a long time, because we haven't already solved the problem of how to do mass incarceration, right? There's so many side effects that come with putting all of these people in the same same place. Yeah. And we chatted before that you become like the five people you surround yourself with, right? The people that surround you influence the way you think, influence the way you act, and influence the person you become. Definitely. So if you go into prison as a very as a young person in, say, your late teens, your early 20s, where you're still trying to figure out your identity, trying to figure out what you believe, and then you're surrounded by people who think that way it's it's a no-brainer right you're going to be influenced to think like that and so we haven't solved the whole mass incarceration thing yet as to how do we like economically and with enough kind of supervision understand how we put all these people away in in a similar spot because you have to do that you can't have separate like homes or separate prisons for everybody Um, and what does that do to people who are being rehabilitated or who are changing their views it's a really really difficult one
0: very difficult one indeed. Um, but I mean, certainly at the way that it's currently being managed, um, surely is is just not sustainable. Um, you've got essentially taxpayers' money for private policemen uh, to watch and walk around one single person, um, which is obviously not scalable. Which is obviously not the way people want to live, knowing that there's you know somebody just sort of on the loose, um, legally speaking, but who is perceived to be high risk.
1: And it didn't even work. Right? Even though you had those private policemen, it still didn't work because you still managed exactly. to carry out an attack. Yep. So it, yeah, it's yeah, it's a tough one.
0: Well, um, I mean, for anyone who's wondering how he managed to do that, um, I believe there was a low-cost shop and uh, he had essentially gone in there a few days before um, essentially just looked looked around the shop to see what he could find uh, on the day of the attack he actually walked in and picked up a knife uh, removed its packaging and essentially started the attack, ran out of essentially stole the knife, ran out of the store um, he had a fake vest around his body um, so very interesting to know where he got that from um, but like you said it, it didn't work and uh, ultimately something has to happen here uh, to make some meaningful progress um, so if we then move on to the next story um, the ANC the ruling party in South Africa have uh, we actually literally spoke about this um, a few weeks ago um, have essentially now allowed companies to produce their own electricity now this for me seems like um, it should have come sooner and I think it's a, it's a resounding sign of, uh, of positivity and hope for South Africans and especially for uh, businesses who have been really struggling without electricity.
1: Yeah, it's, it's been the topic when it comes to power for the last four or five years, and it's, it's been coming for a long time, and it's so obvious now it needs to happen, that they don't really have any other choice, right? So uh, a lot of a lot of papers are trying to spin it that the ANC have actually made a, made a proactive decision here and a choice. I don't think it is. I think they've realized that there's serious, serious struggles with ESCOM. Yep. So for those who don't know, ESCOM is a state-owned enterprise and has full control over the South African power grid. And up until now, you've not been able to um, create your own electricity and supply into that grid or even kind of be off grid because they've completely ring-fenced that that. That utility, um, and what that has done is it's put all this pressure on ESCOM and then through all the corruption and the the mismanagements and the, the all the issues they've gone through, they haven't been able to match South Africa's electricity needs, and so yeah. we've had load shedding over the last couple of years, and uh, kind of through pressure from the mining industry, who have been saying for a long time now, if load shedding continues on an extended basis, we will not be able to function. Like imagine if you're running a mine, Chad, and for 20% or 30% of your mine's running time, you can't even use the equipment. So guys get stuck down in the mines. You can't actually do like, like fulfill your quotas. You can't actually keep a business running. And even in a very, very tough market, you've got no chance. And so for the mining industry, which is so important to South Africa, it's like one of the core pieces of the South African economy, yep. to stand up and say enough is enough. And like you said, the ANC have finally given up that battle and are willing to let private companies start to produce their own electricity. And this can only be good for the grid. That kind of market competition will hopefully provide more reliable electricity at hopefully a better cost and uh, just better customer service all around. So as a citizen, I'm very happy to hear this. I think it's a big kind of era from the ANC. It's taken this long, but at least it's happening now. And hopefully the next few years, we see a lot of competition in this space, which gives me the chance to get a better electricity that is on all the time at a decent price.
0: Yeah, I mean, just the basics. I mean, like like we said just before the call, um, who, would, who would think of living in a, a city with sort of nine... Ten million people. Um, I mean, you know, great, great Johannesburg, and uh, you know, electricity is just not a, a commodity that is uh, reliable, um, which is very interesting. But uh, yes, in terms of ESCOM, we've we've seen sort of the the new CEO speaking out about um, doing some some back maintenance, which I think is definitely a positive step. Um, you know, looking at all of these catastrophes that have happened in in the last couple of months, um, owing to some poor maintenance. Um, so good to see that. Um, also good to see uh, a couple of convictions coming out in terms of the mismanagement in terms of the you know the the funds mismanagement um so yeah and i believe you know he mentioned there may be a couple more arrests um so yeah this also kind of just throwing a bit of accountability um for the actions of of mismanagement and state capture
1: it, it really makes me happy. It gives me a little bit of optimism, right? We've been speaking a lot about South Africa's negatives over the last couple of weeks, and this yeah. is a s- tiny, tiny green shoot, something that really shows that perhaps the, the tide is about to change. So for, for I for one am very optimistic about this. I hope this is the start and the catalyst of a huge change to how South Africa thinks about their energy problem. And if we can solve that, it's it, it's a huge step towards reinvigorating the economy, um, reinvigorating investment kind of morale and and uh, kind of the way that South Africa is seen in the eyes of the rest of the world and if we fix those problems and get electricity back and running as it should be, it's it's a good sign for us.
0: Definitely. I mean, especially for you know uh, overseas entities looking to invest, I think it's just one of those uh, things that just has to be there. It's a prerequisite for any business taking place. Um, so let's see what happens in the near future. Moving on to the next one, uh, the British Academy Film Awards happened this week, the BAFTAs, um, and yeah, we have basically seen uh, a couple of a couple of the awards. So if we if we run through just a few of them, uh, the best film going to 1917. I haven't watched it myself, but I believe the film effects and and The the fluency with which some of the scenes were shot um, is is incredible, so that's great. Have you watched it, uh, or are you thinking of going to see it?
1: I haven't, but everybody is talking about it, and so I'm very excited to go and see it. It seems like exactly the kind of film that I enjoy, and so I'm dying to see it, so I can't wait. Fantastic.
0: I mean, we also saw um, Renee Zellweger getting the Leading Actress Award for her role um, as Judy Garland uh, in the movie Judy. And to be completely honest, I feel quite happy about this. Um, But I was actually in the audience of The Graham Norton Show um, when she was uh, basically on the show talking about this film that was to be released. Very cool.
1: That's awesome. That's awesome. What is The Graham Norton Show like? I mean, I've always watched it on YouTube. What is it like being there in the audience? Is it strange? (laughs)
0: For me, for somebody who loves film and production and uh, just the whole sort of buzz about media, um, I thought it was absolutely fascinating. And for me, one of the coolest things I've done in London, it's completely free, which is awesome. Um, so if ever you are this side, just sign up on uh, one of the websites. Um, I need a double double think about what it is um, but essentially it's, it's a body that essentially manages the audiences for these shows and you essentially put your name down and a couple of lists of potential dates that you could be keen on and the week before they send you an email um, so I thought it was it was really cool being in the room um, you know kind of got to see quite a few cool people um and so yeah was 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 a great experience and i'd highly recommend to anyone who is passing through london if the season is going on at that time um some of the other roles we spoke about our awards for the year and barry mentioned uh joker was his uh, best film of the of the year um oh, sorry his favorite film of the year shall we say and uh yeah the lead the leading actor from that uh Joken phoenix i don't know if i said that right um but uh, from your side i suppose that would be well deserved barry
1: Definitely. I thought his performance was, was sterling, and uh, I really, really enjoyed it. And uh, I, think, I think he's going to kind of clean up a lot of the awards for this next kind of season based on the Joker performance. And um, We have to wait to see what happens at the Oscars, of course. Um, but w- what I thought was interesting about, I think we'll be getting to it slowly, Chad, is that a lot of the talk around the BAFTAs was a lack of diversity, Definitely. right? So one of the major things that came out of this year's BAFTAs was the fact that, I, I'm not sure, if it was, was it no, no people of color were even nominated, I don't think something crazy like that, where there was zero representation for people outside of the traditional kind of white um, audience. And so there was huge uproar, obviously, like rightly so, about the fact that there were no was no representation outside of the, the white population. And uh, what I really enjoyed was Joaquin Phoenix's uh, acceptance speech. Um, where he kind of turned the the mirror back on the academy completely and made a very impassioned plea to everybody talking about this lack of diversity and how he is part of the problem. So he kind of acknowledged his own privilege and the fact that he hasn't done everything in his power to ensure diversity on his sets, in his crews, with his cast members, etc. And uh, it actually, one of the things that really stood out for me, something very powerful, he said that it's up to us as white people, as people who have been advantaged in the past, that we have to dismantle the system. Systems of oppression that are holding back the rest of the, the rest of the world, and so we are the ones who have to fix this stuff, um, yeah. and we have to stand up and make our voices heard and change these traditional systems that are rewarding people in an unfair way. Um, and so I thought it was a really really cool speech and really really powerful, um, very brave of course because yeah. it's like you're getting an award from this this academy, um, and so big ups to him. I hope that things change as 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 a as a result of this kind of uproar with this with this year's.
0: Definitely, definitely. I mean, I think something uh, as you said, really hard to to miss. Um, when you when you see such a lineup like that in terms of nominations, and then the final awards as well. A fact that I heard, um, the Oscars obviously coming up fairly soon as well. Um, and one of the people of of color, one of the ladies who was nominated there, who is British, um, didn't actually even get nominated for the Baftas, which is which is. Really interesting, um, and and I completely agree with you there. I think it takes that that courage um, for an actor who's receiving an award, um, who feels passionately about something, um, to actually to actually. You know, voice his opinion, um, and and not really worry too much about how people are going to react. It's kind of previously been seen as taboo to talk about things that are not politically correct or or to to things that could seem controversial. But I think it's I think it's important that uh, you know he he did that and and shows certainly a lot of courage on his side. Very important indeed.
1: Yeah, definitely. We need a lot more from these kind of high iconic figures that we see in our mass media to really be the voices of the change we want to see, right? They have so much influence over so many people that if they're preaching the right messages and they're pushing for action on important topics, it can only be good for society. So the more we talk about this stuff, the more we can battle through the debates and battle through the challenges and fix what we've broken in the past.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. One hundred percent. Moving on to the next topic, which is uh, a very important one: the coronavirus. Um, literally, as I had finished editing the episode, um, I actually sent Barry a message with the updated stats. And at that time, it had uh, doubled, tripled, um, which is which is absolutely crazy. As we stand now, uh, no, doubt this will be a different figure when this episode comes out. Um, but you know, the numbers have increased as well. There's been three hundred sixty-one deaths, um, and uh, I, I actually just wanted to to talk about uh, you know the sort of financial implications of it for just a second i think Barry will will go a little bit more into into w- w- what the deaths mean and, and that kind of thing um, but uh, obviously, we saw the Chinese government extending the Lunar New Year holiday and the financial markets opened um, essentially uh, you know, this past week. And we saw the equivalent of 300 billion pounds wiped off of the exchange um, with shareholders just selling off shares. Um, the government tried to put a whole bunch of cash into, um, into the company to try and kind of alleviate the effects of, of this, or, or at least anticipated the effects of this. Um, but it it had no uh, no clear uh, benefit there, don't you think that's fascinating?
1: Yeah, it's it's fascinating and and to be expected, right? With this kind of worry and this kind of fear in the markets at the moment, a mass sell off is 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 to be expected. So yep. the number is staggering. It's hard to even fathom that that amount of money. Um, It's hard to imagine that being wiped off of China's economy. And what I also found fascinating was that it wasn't just limited to China All the Asian markets saw downturns and even into Europe and the US. They also had impacts So it's a a reminder of how interconnected our world is and when a Chinese market goes through a huge crash like that It impacts everybody around the world And so it's a scary amount of money and it's indicative of the amount of fear we're seeing in the world at the moment There really is a risk of this becoming a real pandemic and uh, everyone is very very worried about it. Obviously the media is is becoming a firestorm around it and it calls for calm clear leadership and a lot of of work to make sure we, we contain this as best we can and limit the impacts both medically and financially on the world.
0: Yeah, hundred um, percent. I mean, just, just just looking at looking at the notes, um, you know, Barry, you, you you've you've written down that it's it's exceeded the SARS virus in terms of number of infections, um, but luckily with medical in- intervention, um, you know, it doesn't look as deadly, um, which is which is certainly interesting. Um, but you know, when, when, when these conversations come about, people kind of um, try to reduce these alarmist um, sort of views and in comparing it to a virus like flu, um, which has you know a, a large number of infections and deaths per year. Um, but this is certainly something to not just glance over. Um, something bigger than SARS, um, even though we've luckily been able to intercept the sort of death rate, um, it's still certainly very concerning.
1: Yeah, definitely. And, and the reason that the the comparison with SARS is so important is that the coronavirus is a derivative of the SARS 100%. virus, so it has it has like parallels and it's very very similar in nature. And so what we've seen is that. Uh, as as of time of recording, we've seen 17,205 infections in China itself, That's and right. as you mentioned, 361 deaths. And so if you work out that as a percentage as to how many people are dying who get the disease, it's less deadly than SARS. Um, And that's a little bit misleading because potentially it's less deadly because our medical intervention has been better than it was with the SARS virus. So we're not necessarily saying that the virus is less deadly, but we've contained it so far on a proportional basis to be less deadly. But the actual absolute numbers of people being affected is now bigger than the SARS virus. So that is quite worrying. Um, I think that the medical interventions have been staggering. Chad, I don't know if you saw, but in in the town of Wuhan where this kind of virus um, got kicked off... Um, China are so desperate to contain it and trying to stop it in that little town. They went and built a fully-fledged hospital in six days from nothing, from like foundations, from dirt to a fully-fledged hospital in six days. And if you go and watch a time-lapse of them building this, it's one of the most amazing videos you'll ever see. Kind of the feats of engineering and it just shows you how good China are at developing things and building buildings and kind of getting this off the ground. Plus how important it is to fix this as quickly as possible, that you can build a hospital in six days, which is absolutely nuts.
0: Absolutely amazing feat. Um, I haven't watched the time lapse of it, but now that you mentioned there is one, um, I think as soon as we stop this uh, episode, that's the first thing I'm going to do. Absolutely amazing. I actually heard I think they built two hospitals um, in a short period of time, um, and it, it definitely is a sign of a country coming to the party uh, when it's needed the most, um, which which is good to see. Out of complete interest, Barry, did you know what corona actually means? I don't. I don't. In- educate me, Chad. Well, yeah, here's a little bit of useless information. I believe it's derived from a Latin word um, where it essentially means crown, so I believe if you look at the biology of the virus itself and the family of viruses like you mentioned the um, SARS virus actually being part of the same family um, there is a resemblance there to a crown so that's what it means
1: so it's not from the beer then Chad
0: no no it's not from the beer Um, they actually uh, put out a statement on Twitter to say nope not us Um, but if you do look on their bottles there is a crown So, quite interesting there as well. Interesting, interesting. (laughs) So, shall we move on to our next segment? Let's do it. Stuff I found interesting. So, I'm going to kick this one off with um, something I found interesting this week. Obviously, that's the title of this segment, so I don't even know why I said that. Um, But (laughs) this is essentially the question, and I suppose a debate that could be started, of can pseudoscience be dangerous? now uh, like i've said in the in the previous few episodes there's been a bit of a wellness month going on at the company that i've been uh working at it this past few months and essentially they brought in a crystal healer to come in and do a talk and this was kind of from the point of view of introducing a alternative form of uh, therapy and for potentially people who may be interested to find out more on a topic and certainly not to push employees in the way of of doing this Um, but one of the employees took quite negatively to uh, this uh, talk actually even happening in the building Um, and and he essentially started this this debate of uh, you know can this type of pseudoscience actually be dangerous he then linked in an article that is um, from Cora um, where they basically draw comparisons to things like the law of attraction where, where people kind of uh, get taken away from from doing um, sensible things because of this this thinking that if I think positive you know no matter what I actually do um, good things are going to come to me um, and so it, it basically started this debate of whether for mental health, pseudoscience can be dangerous where you know crystal healing and, and sort of believing in these kinds of things can actually have a dangerous effect now I thought it was really interesting um, because for me I, I always subscribe to the idea that there are these various things in the world people believe in what they believe in and for some people it, it you know gives real benefits and, and some people enjoy it um, but you know for me it's it's fairly easy to opt out if it's not for you um, that's just my point of view
1: Barry what is yours? I've got some quite strong opinions on this. I Ooh. think that um, <laughs> when it comes to, when it comes to first of all, pseudoscience is a very very it's a term with a lot of baggage, right? There's a lot of connotation there, and so I don't necessarily want to use that in this discussion. I want to talk sure. about just ration rational thinking. Um, I think that a lack of rational thinking or scientific thinking um, is really the root of a lot of our problems we're seeing in society today. And when I say scientific, I'm not talking about like chemistry or anything you did at school. I'm just simply thinking about evidence based decision making. Sure. Right. So looking objectively at a set of experiments that have delivered some evidence that have then kind of changed the way we think about a certain topic. And the more we move away from that kind of evidence-based decision-making to something more esoteric or something more like um, placebo-based or whatever the story is, such as crystals or those kinds of things, I worry that we, that we, we lack our clarity in thinking and our ability to see objective truth in the world. So I firmly believe we all need to become more rational in the way we think and, and do our best to try and make decisions based on real evidence, and most importantly, be able to change our minds if the evidence changes, right? And that's and that's kind of the crux of scientific or rational thinking. And so when we look at pseudoscience, which is normally things without evidence, and they kind of believed when it comes to, um, is a very charismatic leader who kind of talks about it a lot, or there's a big piece of media like the law of attraction or the secret a, f- a few years ago, and it really kind of captures the the audience who really wants help and really needs help and so we chatted a few weeks ago about When you need help and someone is selling you that hope or selling you that solution that's going to solve all your problems You you obviously want to go along with it because you want to be better You want those things to be solved and in those instances That's when you need scientific rational thinking so that you make the right decisions that being said I, s- I also believe, which is kind of a, a discordant <laughs> belief, that the placebo effect is incredibly important and incredibly yeah. powerful, right? And so for the people who believe in crystals, for example, um, I don't have any strong opinions, I never really looked into it that much, but for the people who really believe in it, If they believe in it so much that it kind of changes their mood and changes the way they look at the world and gives them some hope or some optimism or some kind of goodness or some sort of boost to their mental health, then I'm all for it. Like you said, if if that's what gets you going and that's what helps you move in in this world and kind of get past all the obstacles in your way, then good for you. You must do it because the placebo is so important and so big and powerful. All I, all I want to do is just caution you against, making sure you don't just believe in something just because someone else told you to. Yep. So if you're going to go and experiment with something like The Secret or Affirmations or Crystals, go and experiment and do all your stuff, but actually be as rational and as skeptical as you can at first until it proves to you that it can work for you and then go to the races. Um, I, th- I think that everyone must do what's best for them. But when it comes to a macro perspective, when it comes to setting policies and laws and those sure. sorts of things, we have to be using evidence-based decision-making.
0: Yeah, it's a very interesting debate, and I think you hit the nail on the head uh, on all points there. Um, in terms of, you know, at the beginning of at the beginning of your uh, your argument there, I, I, I thought you were going to kind of... Um, so I thought you were gonna kind of try and take people off of, of doing these things, even though it, it may work for some people. Um I've also never, you know, experimented with crystals or anything like that. Um but you know, something like the the law of attraction. Um I've I've seen um examples in, in my own life um where where you know things happen. Um so I, like you say, I, I definitely think everyone should should kind of try things, but but use rationality, use skepticism, and if it brings positive effects, then then sure. I mean, when we talk about something like like the secret, um, we've had discussions uh, which were surrounded by science, um, you know, where you've you've mentioned like your thoughts are. What you do, you know, what you think is is what you ultimately do. And if I mean, even if we look at the the sort of terrorist attack that happened today, it, it's kind of that same um, that same band where you know you you surround yourself with people who are who are talking about this and this only that becomes that becomes your your reality. Um, so I I agree that there are some positive effects in in thinking positively. Um, but yeah, completely agree. Um, I just think uh, you know it, it's something that's out there. If you're keen. You know, double in it. If you're not keen, um, I don't think you should take it away from the people who are enjoying real benefits from it.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think that it kind of, kind of comes back to our discussion on hypnosis last week about like self hypnotization. Yeah. And that's what you're doing to yourself when you believe in these things, right? So when it comes to affirmations or, or positive reinforcement, what you're choosing to do, in essence, is look for the positive and look for the luck and look for the optimism in the world. Yeah. And by focusing on that only, it obviously will impact the way you think and therefore the way you act. But as long as you understand that's why you're doing it. You're not doing it because there's some magical force out there that's going to deliver you everything that you want, right? It's not about something esoteric or something out there. It's, it's about understanding how do I focus my energies on the right things that are going to bring the best results for me. So if a crystal is the best way for me to focus my energies and my thoughts and my attention on a certain thing that's really good for me, then that's great. As long as you understand that it's not the crystal that's doing that, it's you that is, that is pushing that energy onto an object or a ritual or something like that that is making that change. Um, I I don't think we're going to change minds or improve people's lives by trying to take away their crystals, right? I think the way we change lives is by helping them to think more clearly and more rationally about how to use these tools to improve their life and not just believe in them because they have some sort of magical powers.
0: Completely agree, uh, 100% there. Now, if we do move on to science um, and something that is more evidence-based, something I found quite interesting, we spoke about sleep in our first episode with 13 weeks later, and I'm still working through the book, uh, but finding sort of nuggets <laughs> of interesting information along the way. And, and that's the thing, This this book kind of just you know it's a gift that keeps on giving um and for me which is really interesting was the the correlation the scientific correlation uh, between the number of heart attacks and accidents car motor, motor vehicle accidents the day after we are forced to lose an hour of sleep so if you look at daylight savings um obviously in the uk um if you if you essentially um, the the day we, we are forced to to have an one hour less of sleep correlated to uh, all of the admissions in hospitals and, and all those types of things and accidents um, that that's a that's an interesting correlation for me and the other interesting piece is if you look at the inverse i.e. when you are when you gain an extra hour of sleep um, the inverse correlation is true as well you you actually see a noted drop in heart attacks and, and drop in accidents and um, with increased concentration and that kind of thing. Um, really fascinating for me um, how you know we, we actually are forced by the, the changing of clocks to uh, essentially change our biology and, and increase or, or decrease the risk of life.
1: It's such a beautiful natural experiment, right? In so much of science, we have to rely on these small sample sizes that are kind of biased because of the kind of people would volunteer for these studies and whatnot, whereas daylight saving is a forced experiment on everybody in these regions. Yeah. And it, it happens every single year, and you can look at lots and lots of data which can pull these other insights. So it's a, it's a lovely national national experiment, and it really does show the power of sleep, like you say. Sleep is so underrated, and the more we focus on it and the better we make it quality-wise, the better our lives and we have to understand that
0: 100 agree there now moving on to the next one which is i suppose entertainment based um obviously you know you and i actually do have some downtime um and in <laughs> in that said downtime this past weekend um i watched a documentary of taylor swift uh, so she's released her miss americana de- documentary on netflix and for me yeah just uh, fascinating to see uh, some of the sort of clips I would have never come across um, I'm sure the super fans would have not learned anything new um, but for me who just you know hears her music on radio um, I, I definitely gained some interesting insights um, out of her life so she's had a truly incredible life I, I think that's that's something to, to to note how she's kind of skyrocketed to fame at a really really young age um, so there's there's videos of her doing competitions and that kind of thing at, at sort of Thirteen years old. Um, I think when uh, when Sony were sort of listening to her first recorded um, piece, her uh, first recorded single. I think she was sort of around the age of sixteen, um, which which is incredible um, to to sort of get so big at such a young age. Um, and uh, I mean, we spoke about Kanye West a while back, um, and that event. Has had a profound effect on her. Um, so, you know, where she has kind of built her whole life up on positive confirmation from those around her, that's where she kind of derived all of her value. When she was standing on that stage getting that award um, and the crowd started booing. Um, they were really booing at Kanye West but for her there, there wasn't that distinction she kind of felt like a failure she felt like people were booing for her she kind of felt like she didn't deserve to be there and that for me was really interesting and naturally um, you know her sort of mental health I guess uh, took a bit of a dip after that
1: remind me what that event was Chad I, I, am I correct in saying that Kanye West thought Beyonce should have won the award was that was that the the story 100%. So there
0: you have uh, Taylor Swift about to start her speech. In fact, I think she had started her speech holding this award, looking at it, you know, really, uh, really a massive accomplishment for her and, and, and something she'd been working as like a pinnacle to her, you know, sort of rise. Um, and there, yeah, Kanye West basically walks onto the stage, takes the microphone out of her hand um, and says, you know, congratulations. But, you know, Beyonce had a great video. Um, and and it, was, it was, I suppose, that, that, that moment that really started the scrutiny on Kanye West and, uh, and you know, the, his, the way he sort of conducts himself. Um, I believe uh, at that time he's said to have had bipolar. Um, but I suppose, you know, looking back, um, there's all of those kinds of insights. Do you remember that moment um, or was it something, something you missed?
1: It's 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 very blurry in my memory. I, I do remember the uproar. I don't remember seeing the actual moments itself, but I remember the uproar after that and all the various back and forth. I didn't realize she took that much time off. That really shows how, how much of an impact she actually had on her. Like she was in her prime, she was like right at the top of the world, one of the biggest pop stars in the world. To take it take that much time off is is serious. So I think it's good that she's talking about these sorts of effects, um, to try and bring some awareness to the fact that the perils of fame and, and, and what can happen in these mass media occurrences where you're up in front of the entire world and something like that happens to you, how do you deal with it? So interesting.
0: Yeah, 100%. Um, and in terms of Barry's point of how, how long she took off, she, she took a full year off. Um, where she she kind of didn't show her face at all. No sort of public engagements, nothing. Um, Which is, like you say, for someone in in their prime, um, is definitely a significant effect. Um, Then basically, sort of shortly after that, um, she was involved in a sexual assault case. She had brought about action uh, in a sexual assault case where a guy, um, essentially on the red carpet, from what I can understand, um, put his hand up her skirt. Um, There was a photo of the moment that this happened. There were sort of seven witnesses, I believe, but um, for her, just the fact that she had to prove to a jury um, and, and that there was the possibility that somebody might not believe her um, was really something that, that resonated quite deeply within her and, and, and kind of, um, you know, got got her thinking about all of the people who have these cases and, and don't get believed. Um, and so I suppose she kind of from then, uh, you know, it, it really sat quite deep. Um, within her now, in the end, the jury managed to uh, rule in her favor, and she was sort of able to to go on with her life um, and I, I think it started picking up in, in velocity in terms of making new records and and, and that kind of thing um, until the 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 Twitter mob, um, which you know previously never existed, um, decided that they all hated Taylor Swift and it actually got to a global trending hashtag um, with obviously as many tweets um, detailing why they hated um, Taylor Swift. And I think the hashtag was something to the effect of, uh, you know, the, the Taylor show is over. Um, so, you know, that naturally going to have an effect as well. Um, I mean, we've, we've certainly seen this in, in recent times. We spoke last week about cancel culture and that kind of thing. Why is a collective of people behind their computers able to have so much power over someone's life?
1: Yeah, it, it, it's one of the perils of modern fame, and it's kind of what social media has brought into this world, is this idea that a mob mentality can kind of take hold of a, of a cultural moment, and and the hate can be so, so loud, right? So if you look at Taylor's career, she's got millions and millions and millions and millions of fans, yeah. but all it needs is a thousand haters or a thousand people who just have fun throwing... throwing um, Shaded people, um, all it takes is them to be very, very loud, and they can really have an impact on the person they're trying to hurt or yep. kind of the cultural moment they're trying to hijack. Um, and so I was actually reading a blog post by a guy called Tim Ferriss the other day talking about the perils of fame and about how this is the major like, empathetic and emotional struggle that these famous people go through is that regardless of how the numbers, so you know you have so many fans, you know your yeah. things are still selling, you know all of that stuff, Definitely. it's really hard to disregard that small minority that are very, very loud on social media and are saying horribly hurtful things about you. So how do you compartmentalize the fact that you are successful. You do have fans that love you, and, and but unfortunately, those fans are often a lot quieter than the people who are just throwing outrage at you. Definitely. It's one of the most difficult things that famous people like must have to deal with. And for me, it's it's a huge turnoff for for when thinking about fame, right? It's it's one of those things that no one wants to deal with, and unfortunately, it's part of the package, especially yep. when you're at the kind of scale and kind of popularity that Taylor Swift is.
0: Hundred percent, and uh, I think as these pop stars go on in life, uh, they get. Better and better at this. This muscle we spoke about, um, you know, sort of thoughts and, and behaviors and patterns as being muscles, and this is another one where you where you can sort of train yourself to not take as much uh, notice of the negative uh, sort of comments. Um, and I mean we've seen this on YouTube as well. We've we've seen this uh, sort of everywhere where you have trolls who feel empowered um, being behind a screen um, to say something that they potentially wouldn't have even said face-to-face. Um, I would probably say 100% wouldn't have said face-to-face. I mean, I, I think that's the real interesting uh, and the real challenging thing here um, is that you've, you've got a group of people who are empowered um, and ultimately not much can stop them, um, which, is, which is definitely interesting. Um, so essentially the, the sort of next chain of progression when she kind of picked herself up again after obviously getting better at this, um is that she she sort of started releasing some new music um and then started to have some very strong political views um and and started actually voicing these political views um which is also interesting um so now in the music game where sort of all of her producers and uh, i suppose media managers and and all of those kinds of people were asking her to to be the good girl you know don't say anything don't sort of be anything just just be the good girl um she she actually just thought for a second no um for me not to say something is is way worse you know what what could happen years down the line if i don't voice my opinion um and uh, essentially um the, the result of that is the younger generation um started started voting um so there was a marked improvement in the the voter turnout Um, and you know ultimately she didn't get the result that she was advocating for Um, but certainly an interesting wave and 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 we we spoke about courage um, in terms of uh, you know Mr. Phoenix and, and his speech for the BAFTAs and it was exactly the same thing here where she won I think a Grammy and her closing speech was essentially saying you know thanks for voting for me this is something that you know, I only got because people voted for and there's something else that people vote for, and that's the elections, turnout, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. And um, it's kind of one of those where this taboo world of, of speaking out and having an opinion um, is she's sort of one of the advocates for, for breaking that down. And I think quite an important cause.
1: Yeah, very important. And she's such an important figure when it comes to female empowerment and, and gender equality and a lot of these kind of issues. And the fact that she is speaking up is, is is very good. I mean, she obviously is very influential to a large group of the younger generation. And so the more she talks about these important issues and the more she kind of brings these to the surface, the better it is for society. So all props to her. May she continue to keep speaking her voice even if we don't like what she says all the time, the fact that she's yeah. actually bringing these topics up is more important. And so whether you like her or hate her, you have to admire her for, as you say, her courage and also her her ability to m- make a mass movement like this and actually really influence on a, on a masterful level. Uh, so yeah, all props to her.
0: Definitely. I mean, it's, it's one of those where even if one lyric can sort of get a little thought going in your mind. Um it's it's certainly very powerful. I mean there's a there's a lyric that stuck with me in in uh, one of her last songs. You need to calm down. Now I'm not sure if you've watched the music video, but um it's it's a fantastic music video. Um very colorful. Um it's got the, you know she's got the Fab 5 in there. Um really cool music video. Um, but I think one of the closing lyrics to that song is is shade never made anybody less gay. And uh, and that's such an interesting one, you know, whether your beliefs are for or against um, the act of, of sort of belittling someone and bringing somebody down is not going to change fundamentally who they are. So why not just say nothing? Um, and, and that for me is, is is a great a great lyric, a great sort of um, wave of, I think something that, that could become quite a powerful movement. So um, yeah, props to her, as you said. Now the next thing, um, I think Barry's obviously seen this one, um, but something I found <laughs> interesting this week is uh, having been in a public urinal. And uh, the guy next to me was standing there uh, with one, one hand on his cell phone texting, actually physically texting, um, and obviously the other hand doing the business. Now, for me, this was kind of just uh, completely, you know, way over the top. Um, you know, we, we're obviously crazy about our phones. We, we do some crazy things these days, like we were talking about screen on screen the other day, um, which is crazy in itself. But texting while at the urinal, one step too far, no? No.
1: Definitely, it's emblematic of the kind of the society we're living in at the moment and the fact that our phones are glued to our hands and and there's no moment during the day where we are free from these devices. Um, and until we are aware of this, until we become consciously aware of how much we're using our phones, we're going to see more and more of these situations, Chad, where it's completely ridiculous. I mean, the, the, oh, the public urinal is the one place you should be focusing on your task at hand, <laughs> and not uh, not um, <laughs> deferring your focus. Um, and so it's 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 crazy. I think that we all need to think very carefully about the amount we use our phones and yeah. those little moments of theoretical boredom or kind of in between when you're walking between places or you're standing in. A queue or any of those times where we feel like we have the desire to pick up our phone, if we were just kind of present and kind of relaxed in that moment and just kind of just sat there and st- or stood there with our thoughts and just kind of rested for a little bit from all yeah. the inputs, I think it'd be good for us, right? The fact that we're getting inputs 24-7, like whether it's audio or text or video or whatever the story is, I think it's really powerful to have those moments of just stillness, um, and, yeah, so I, I hope, hope we don't see as much of these in the future, but my, I fear that we get, these are going to get worse and worse. Uh, it's up to us to look at our own phone habits and uh, fix it for ourselves, I think.
0: Definitely. I mean, the first thing going through my mind is what on earth could be that important? And secondly, um, surely, you know, the fact that there's other people in this uh, facility should uh, make you think twice about taking out such a device. Um, So yeah, completely agree with you there. Moving on to our next segment. Looking ahead. Right, so we've already touched on UK and uh, their newfound confidence um, after coming out of the EU. And uh, this last week we saw something else interesting. So Huawei have been uh, set to be a threat Um, in 5G networks by Donald Trump um, and the US where he says, uh, that you know installing Huawei infrastructure could be opening the gates to chinese spies um and sort of making it easier for china to to spy on on what's happening in the country um and essentially the uk has completely ignored uh, what what he's had to say um i believe there's a, a sort of body or, or sort of establishment um, wherein the uk shares intelligence with other nations including Australia, Canada, and the US. And so by taking this stance, um, it's it's quite an interesting one in terms of you know what the other nations have to say on, on that front. Um, but essentially they have put in some caps. So they've set a maximum cap of 35% of the total 5G infrastructure could be set out by Huawei. They've also set the type of infrastructure to the um, kind of non-core pieces. Uh, so if you look at like an antenna rather than a server, Um, which is also interesting. Um, And uh, yeah, I mean, does this do anything for the spying issue, do you think?
1: Yeah, that, that's why this story confuses me a bit. I think that I can understand... I understand them wanting to do business with Huawei, right? So the first thing that's important to know is that Huawei are so far ahead when it comes to 5G infrastructure. So the technology is actually better than a lot of the Western kind of counterparts. And and so for the UK, they obviously want this business and they want this technology in their country. So I understand their willingness to do business with them. Um, but the risk, the risk is not the the Huawei kind of takeover of, of the, the grid. It's, it's a risk of spying, like we said. And so whether they have 1% or 99% of the technology, I would think that the spying issue is is there, right? So, so this cap seems a bit arbitrary to me. I'm not sure what it's trying to accomplish other than diversifying risk and trying to allow for British counterparts to compete. Um, but other than that, it kind of is a big like slap in the face to the U.S. because the U.S. were very adamant that they wanted the U.K. to say no on a blanket basis as well. And so they are very, obviously very upset with this, and I've seen reports of them saying they might not even share intelligence anymore because they're worried it's going to be intercepted because the U.K. now has this infrastructure. So even though it's not going to be in the core areas and it's away from nuclear power plants and away from government facilities and all that stuff, the fact that it's there means that there's a risk. And so the question here is, do you trust Huawei to not be involved with the Chinese government? That's what it all comes down to, right? So obviously Huawei are saying that we're not involved. We would never do that. We would never give the government access, et cetera, et cetera. But as we know with China, the government has their, their fingers in every single pie. And so it's do you trust that kind of separation or that Chinese wall? Uh, excuse the pardon But like that's kind of the debate here. And so the 35% for me, Chad, feels arbitrary. I don't know what you think.
0: So that 35% is quite an interesting one, actually. I don't know the exact figure, but but I believe there was a cap previously for Huawei, um, which was oh, okay. um, roughly, I, I think it was about a third. Um, so this has actually given them a couple of extra percentage points um, to actually expand their presence a little bit more, which is interesting. Um, and I think one of the other considerations here that is hard to ignore is um, that currently the 5g networks have obviously still developing but there are currently two providers that are offering 5g in the uk and i believe huawei equipment has already been installed so had the uk gone with the us's way um they would have had to sort of dismantle all of that stuff um obviously bring in alternative providers um which would sort of obviously increase the cost uh, to the consumer um and so obviously um Boris Johnson one of his promises um was obviously to focus on on the internet focus on networks and uh, he, for him this obviously being a risk worthwhile taking um which is quite an interesting one and um, for me I would rather as the end consumer have a cheaper and uh, you know faster Network system. I, I appreciate the risk mitigations in terms of the non-core pieces, um, and uh, even if it may be arbitrary, um, you know, I appreciate there being a cap um, to sort of make me feel a little bit better when going to sleep at night. What do you think?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I, I, I'm not quite sure what to make of it. Um, obviously, there's huge concerns about China's uh, behavior in this kind of in the in these kind of debates. Um, and time will tell what's going to happen, right? I, th- I I find it interesting that this technological infrastructure kind of feels like the army bases of the 21st century, right? We're not we're not installing army bases anymore. We're installing technology that's going to give yes. us the opportunity to launch cyber warfare or to gain intelligence or any of these sorts of things. So who would have thought that a telephone tower would be such an important political and diplomatic um, piece of equipment in in, in 2020, right? It, it's it's fascinating that that's how the world has evolved where just that kind of technology is so important to a country's national security.
0: Definitely. I mean, I think the other thing that I forgot to mention as well um, that I think is really hard to ignore is obviously the UK are now looking at trade negotiations over the course of the year now. Do they want to alienate China as an option? Um, I, I certainly think that could be one of the reasons why they thought otherwise. Um, but completely agree with you there. It's it's really interesting to see how the world of warfare has changed uh, so much over these past few generations. Shall we move on to our next segment?
1: Yep, let's do it.
0: Develop and grow. Right, so we're gonna kick this one off with something that I experienced this past week, and it's kind of a humbling moment, really. Um, so I threw myself in the fast lane in the swimming pool. I've uh, registered for another Half Ironman um, in line with the the goals theme that we discussed last year. Um, and so, yeah, basically thought, let me go into the fast lane, if anything is going to push me to work a little bit harder. And obviously from, from pushing boundaries, that's where growth happens. Um, and so I actually ended up being in the lane with a dude who's a superhuman. Um, well, either that or I'm just a terrible swimmer. Um, but yeah, essentially, I, I I naturally had to swim a lot quicker just to kind of keep up um, and essentially got kind of 800 meters into my workout where I had this kind of paralyzing calf spasm, um, that, yeah, I've never had anything to this sort of magnitude before, where I had to actually physically stop and walk to the other side of the pool, um, you know, trying to get this spasm to stop, um, and yeah, absolutely excruciating, and, and for me, it, it kind of just uh, just brought about this thought of, you know, know your limits, um, slow and steady wins the race, and I think I got ahead of myself there for a second,
1: um, and yeah, just a humbling moment to bring me back down to earth. There's, there's nothing like those moments where your ego gets ahead of you and you think you can do more than you can do, right? And you see someone, and uh, I don't know about you, Chad, but I'm super competitive, so I completely 100%. understand that impulse. When I see someone like that, I'm like, I can match that. Of course I can, even if I've got no evidence to, to back that <laughs> assumption up whatsoever. I, uh, kind of the parallel that I draw is that I, I run a park run every Saturday morning, which is a nice little 5K route. Yeah. And for some reason, there's this one little 11-year-old boy who beats me every <laughs> week, and it, and it gets to me so much. Because <laughs> like even though I know that he's like super fast, and he's got all the energy in the world and of course it's okay that he's beating me. It's like <laughs> it's not okay. And so <laughs> I will push myself so hard to keep up with him and then yeah. ruin the second half of my race because yeah. I'm not actually thinking carefully enough about it. So obviously there's a fine line, you always do want to be pushing yourself and you wanna be getting as 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 good a work hard as possible. But uh, every now and then you do push too far because of ego. So um, while amusing, um, it's one of those (laughs) things that happens in workouts. And as long as you're able to recover, Chad, that's all that matters.
0: Definitely. Uh, Managed to get out of it, thankfully. But I'm sort of scarred now. I I can't see myself going back into the pool. So you're going to have to get over that emotional trauma, I guess. Now, tell us about
1: what you discovered this week. Sure thing. So I'm reading a book called The School of Life at the moment. So for the YouTube viewers, hopefully that's in focus. We'll find out (laughs) later. So it's, it's, a, it's a great book, and we, we chat a lot about mental health on this podcast. It's one of our key topics, and uh, this book is all about emotional health, exactly that. Um, and It's been great so far. I'm about halfway through and really loving it. And one of the things I wanted to pull out for this week was a way to kind of Mark yourself as to try and figure out how are you doing at the moment. So when we're trying to think about improving ourselves going forward, it's important that we know what our baseline is. It's important that we understand where we are today so that we can track our improvements and actually see that progress going forward. If you don't know where your baseline is and you've got this ideal, this goal you're trying to aim for, then it's very hard to understand are you making progress along that journey. And so the baseline is important. And so in this book, he kind of pulls out four key, met almost I want to call them metrics yep. for emotional health um, that kind of look at how are you doing right now and therefore how can you improve. So Chad, I'm going to give you the four one by one and we can yeah. do a comment on each one. That's so it. the first one is what he calls self-love. And the way he describes self-love is how much can we be friends with ourselves and remain on our own side? So I think it's interesting because it seems weird to be friends with yourself. A friend seems like it should be someone external to you. Yep. Um, but I think why it, why it resonates with me as a metaphor is that the way we treat our friends is often a lot better than the way we treat ourselves. Yep. right? With friends, we have empathy, we believe in them, we give them support. We kind of, if they do something wrong, we forgive them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. With ourselves, we're often a lot more harsh. And so if thinking about being friends with ourselves and being on our own side is an important part of self-love and self-care to ensure that our self-esteem is as high as it could be. Do you agree?
0: Absolutely agree there. I mean, our internal dialogue is, is key. Um, and it's, it's something we've already spoken about in this episode. Um, so yeah, I mean, you're completely right. If if I compare the way I, I treat a friend to the way I treat myself, even, even on silly things, um, you know, if you are, if you fumble over something, if you do something silly, you know, your immediate reaction is, ah, oh, Chad, you're such an idiot, um, and and sure you may be, um, but uh, you know ninety nine percent of the time you're just being too hard on yourself. And I think thinking of that as a marker will just bring attention to our sort of self care and, and self love. And I think it's something that we need to heighten our intention to.
1: Definitely, definitely. All right. Part number two of the metrics is something called candor, and candor is the idea of what is the extent to which difficult ideas or troubling facts can be admitted into our minds explored in a sober fashion <laughs> and then accepted without denial. Right? So this is the idea of self-awareness and understanding difficult truths or difficult compromises that have been made and can you actually look at them without denying them? Right. And why this is so difficult is because we are amazing at deceiving ourselves, at deluding ourselves, at coming up with random rationalizations for decisions that we make. And the idea of candor is how honest can we be with ourselves? Can you sit down and admit where you've got a flaw or admit where you've got an insecurity or admit where you need work. And the more honest you can be with yourself, the better chance you have of actually fixing it. Like with anything, if you're going to deny the problem, you're never going to get anywhere close to fixing it. So to be candid with, one, with oneself is a really, really key metric for, for mental health. Chad?
0: Yeah, I mean, this is kind of like our discussion about science, really. Um, if we can put something over onto stage um, and remove any sort of emotional attachments to it, Evaluated for its merits, um, that certainly opens the realm for possibility. And I think it's far too easy to lock and hold on to a position um, because it's what we know, it's what we've you know been brought up to believe, it's what our current frame of reference is showing. Um, but yeah, opening ourselves up to the, the the possibility of there being something
1: different, and I think that's something that's important. Definitely. All right, metric number three is that of communication. Now, the d- idea of communication is can we patiently and reasonably put our disappointments into words that more or less enable others to see our points? So this kind of speaks to the fact that we often feel misunderstood as individuals, right? We have things inside of our head that we wish that someone could understand. And even people close to us, our partners, our family members, our friends, etc. we often feel misunderstood. And the ability to articulate something that someone else can understand um, with empathy, putting yourself in their shoes, trying to understand how they would look at that topic, that's a sign of emotional health. If you're unable to imagine what you need to say in order to get a message across to somebody else, you're often overthinking it or you're in your own head or you're not situated in the real world. And you're not understanding that that communication is a sign of your lack of clarity in a way. So the clearer you're thinking, the more emotionally healthy you are, the better you are able to understand those disappointments and be able to talk about them in a reasonable way without getting super emotional or super all over the place. Chad?
0: Yeah. So quick thought that came to mind. Have you ever had a sort of set of circumstances where you have to tutor a friend on a new topic? And by the end of that experience, you find you actually have a deeper understanding of the subject matter yourself?
1: Definitely, and, and that's kind of the key point of this, is the fact yeah. that it's so easy to give advice, it's hard to take our own advice, right? So when we are communicating with a friend and talking through their issues and trying to understand what they're going through, it often forces us to get some clarity on what we think and what we think the best course of action is. And so it's so easy to give advice to other people. It's so hard to actually listen to your own advice. Yep. And so that, can be, that communication is very important. And I agree with you, Chad. Talking it through and being able to communicate it in a clear way is the first step to understanding what you're going through, to understanding that disappointment and putting it in the right context. And we have to be social creatures. right? We can't do it on ourselves, yep. by ourselves. right? We can't just live in our own heads the whole time. We have to be social and be able to share this with people that care about us. And so communication is, is very, very important there.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think for me the, the important piece of this is the patient and reasonable bit. Um, I mean, that straight away takes away all irrationality. It takes away, um, you know, emotional connotations in, in sort of the, the inferences we make in, in, in our tonality and the way we speak. Um, and and by, yeah, by, by doing it patiently and reasonably um, it is essentially, um, you know, making sure that we ourselves are actually hearing what's coming out of our mouths and uh, actually forcing ourselves to think with that kind of way of speaking, if that makes any sense. So what's the next one?
1: Yeah, so the last metric is what's called trust. And I really like the way he writes about this. I'm going to read it word for word. He says, How readily might we survive a challenge in the form of a speech we must give or a romantic rejection or a bout of financial trouble, a journey to another country or even a common cold? How resilient are we? Right, and so this is talking to do we trust ourselves that if we make a mistake, if we fall down, if we do something wrong, how do, we, how do we get it back up? Do we have that resilience to understand that even if I make a mistake, I believe in myself that I'm gonna be able to get back up and rebuild, right? And that trust comes from experimenting. That trust comes from doing it and failing and failing and failing and failing and proving to yourself that you can do it. So when, when you don't have trust in yourself, you're not gonna take any risks. You're going to stay nicely inside your comfort zone. You're going to do exactly what you've always done. You're never going to change anything because it's too risky to go and try something new in case you fail. right? So the more trust you can build with yourself and understand that you are strong and resilient, the more emotionally healthy you are and the better the better suited you are to getting past life's obstacles. Any thoughts, Chad?
0: Yeah, I mean, I like it. I do like it, but I, I also don't like it. Um, and I, I'll tell you why. <laughs> Um, Tell in, in, in terms in terms of this idea of resilience I think for me and, and even my sort of internal dialogue I think that if I can stick something out for a period of time I'm resilient that that's a marker of approval it, it, it's a, it's a positive thing um but I mean sometimes it's okay to fail sometimes it's okay to not be resilient. Um, and so for me I just I just worry that it encourages us um, kind of like, Guys crying, for example, um, kind of like that. That whole stigma. It kind of encourages us to want to be resilient
1: when we are actually entitled to not be. If that makes any sense. That's that's an interesting point. I, I didn't think about it like that. I think that when I'm using the word resilience here, I'm thinking, I'm talking about the fact that we can go into those depths, so those yeah. Dark, yeah. dark, dark moments, and actually feel those feelings, and. The tr- have the 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 kind of con- confidence we're going to get out of those situations. Definitely. So I think what you're saying is right. Like it's it's not about being resilient immediately. It's not about being resilient in the fact that we can never feel sad or never feel upset or never feel yeah. like we've like we've 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 done a bad thing. It's about knowing that even in the depths of those dark moments, we have the ability to stand up once again. Yeah. Right? And so we've spoken a lot about this before, especially from a male perspective, is actually feeling those emotions and actually going through it, not trying to sweep it under the rug, but going yeah. through that sadness, going through those tough times, but understanding that you don't have to live there forever. Once you've done that grieving, you've done that work, you've done, you've got through that hurt, you've processed that emotion, you know that you can stand back up again. Um, definitely, But yeah, great point, Jed.
0: Yeah, I mean, I can definitely see how uh, knowing uh, your ability to... You know, come back for something that's uh, you know adverse or, or, or something bad that happened. Um, I, I can definitely see how just knowing that you're able to re- rebound, uh, bounce back, um, you know, could give you some some mental clarity and and, and you know, uh, be a positive indicator for mental health. Um, but yeah, glad we kind of spoke to to both sides of that argument. Shall we move on to a question from our listener? Definitely. What's on your mind? Alrighty, so this week we have a question again from a listener. Thanks again for your question, Michaela, Um, and uh, yeah, let's have a listen.
1: Hey guys, thanks for a great podcast. This is a question from a fellow South African and bookworm. And just a thought on our society going digital and paperless. Are books and buying books and bookstores going to become obsolete uh, I'd love your thoughts on that. And now that everything is online and accessible online, when last did you actually go and buy a book? Something to think about. Thanks so much, guys.
0: I kind of already know the answer to this question, and all of our YouTube viewers know the answer to this question. But anyway, let's do it. Barry, when was the last time you bought a book?
1: <laughs> oh, Chad, I bought a book yesterday, of course. Of course I bought a book yesterday. Um, there are a few things that I'm more passionate about than physical books, right? And okay. so you have to take everything I say with a pinch of salt. <laughs> it's almost a religious a religious feeling when it comes to books. Um, I, you know, I, I it's a great question, and it's something that really saddens me is that I'm seeing that decline of, of physical bookstores, of people reading physical books because people are moving to Kindles or even scared, more scarily moving to their phones or moving to Twitter and those sorts of things, mean, reading less books in general. Um, And so that definitely is a trend and it's a worrying trend for me. I I really believe in the power of books. I think that books are one of the most amazing technologies we've ever invented. And when it comes to knowledge acquisition, when it comes to um, escapism, when it comes to learning about ourselves, I think that books are the best tool for that. Um, personally, I buy all my books in physical formats because I like the feeling of it and I like the smell and I like having it on my shelf. And I yeah. have this dream, Chad, one day of having one of those Harry Potter libraries <laughs> with just like a ceiling to, to floor shelves with that the uh, the kind of the red velvet carpets and a right. nice armchair and the ladder going around. <laughs> um, and so I'm busy building my, my physical library t- right now and I buy books as much as I can. It's one of those things where... I don't feel guilty about spending money on books. That's the one category of my spending that I'm willing to spend as much money as I want. So when I see a book that I want, I don't even think about it, I just buy it. Because books have impacted my life so much and I think they're such an important piece of who I am and they've kind of made me the person that I am. um, And that's why they're so important to me. When it comes to the physical versus the digital thing, I, I obviously am very romantic about physical books, um, but I don't want to push that on anyone else, right? The, the Kindle is an amazing piece of technology. And the fact that it's portable and the fact that it's light and it works and you don't have to lug around big, heavy books is amazing. And it's often made people read more in certain circumstances. So for me, it's not about whether it's physical or digital. The issue is please read more. Read more books. That's yeah. what's important. Whether you like the physical stuff or the digital um, doesn't really matter. The reason I like physical is because there's so many screens in my life already. Right, so when I sit down in a book for an hour, I'm getting away from every other screen. The yep. Kindle, to me, is just, just another screen. Even though the e inks a little bit different and it's not as hard on the eyes and it seems a little bit different, for me, being able to retreat to a couch um, with a nice um, cup of coffee or a glass of water and reading a book for an hour or two really helps me just get away from the rest of the world. What do you think, Chad?
0: Yeah, I agree. I think it's a, it's a good question. Um, and I, I mean, I think why it's a good question is if we look at how... Um, CDs have changed, how DVDs have changed. Um, You know, we kind of just rent something on an Apple TV in terms of music. We listen to it on a streaming service. Um, And so there is that natural question of what happens with a physical book. Um, But it is different because with a CD, there's no way of me picking up the CD and with my eyes scanning the contents of that CD. You know, it's kind of how I'm, I'm, I'm really interacting with that physical media and and that's what's changed whereas with the book you know you can use a book as a book you know you don't need some other thing to interpret what it's what it's saying um and so that's why i think it has sort of st- stood the test of time up till now at least um but it certainly is an interesting one so on my front, I have the last few books that I've uh, picked up and, and kind of am halfway through um, it is a bit of a mix, really. So I've got, I think, four books that I'm yet to read in physical form. Um, and then I have one that is on my phone in the Kindle app, um, which is, you know, at any given time able to read. And I, I like having both because... If I am in a in a case where you know I didn't envisage myself to have any spare time I can now just pull out my phone or my iPad that's already there with me for whatever purpose um, and I can you know read a book um, which I think is useful um, like you said with the with the Kindle I think why it's so powerful is because of this e ink screen and I haven't got one yet um, but I certainly think you know once I get get one um, which I think is an inevitability um, I think it's gonna be interesting to see how my opinion changes there um, it is the glare of the phone and it is the glare of the iPad and the the bright light that that emits from behind it that for me has kind of got me a bit cautionary and I, I, I sort of use it um, you know on and off. I'd, I'd much rather spend more time um, with, with a book on a physical piece of paper. Um, but yeah, certainly once I, once I give a Kindle a go, it's going to be an interesting transition. Um, I mean, I'd be fascinated to, to hear what our listeners think on this. Um, so yeah, do let us know where we, you sit on, on that piece of uh, the debate. Um, so yeah, very good to learn a bit more about the things you care most about in the world. Um, and I, I think a pretty great episode.
1: I think so too. It' um, lucky number thirteen, as we like to say. <laughs> um, it's been it's been a good episode. Lots of good stuff. Um, we're really enjoying the feedback. We've seen a, lo- a big growth in the last kind of week or two. And a big reminder: we've recently launched our Facebook page for for the podcast. Um, and yes. so we've had a few people saying, "Oh, it's a little bit long for us. The podcast going too long." <laughs> don't worry, we've got you covered. We've been clipping out individual pieces of the episode yep. and putting it on our YouTube Clips channel and now on our new Facebook page. And so if you don't want to if you don't want to commit to a full hour and a half podcast right now go and test out some of our clips to try and pick a topic that matters to you or that looks interesting to you and get a sense of what we're doing that facebook page will be updated continually so if you're on facebook it's a much better use of your time than scrolling through other people's <laughs> wedding photos and engagement shoots and all that good stuff yeah um hopefully you'll learn something and uh yeah i really enjoyed this one chad so thank you Absolutely,
0: and and more importantly, if you are on that Facebook page, please send us a message. Um, you know, I think a lot of the time we're just kind of churning out content and anecdotally hearing back a few things about each episode but we want to we want to engage um and and you know we want to turn this into a two-sided conversation so if you are there um certainly stop in and watch all the videos you can um but also let us know your thoughts and and if there's something you'd like us to chat about that would be great as well um if you are listening just on the one of our podcast apps please do hit subscribe or follow depending on which one you're on and uh, we'll see you soon this was episode 13 of across the pond
1: (laughs) Across the pond With Barry and Chad